Blessed Assurance and welcome to Kingdom Christian Fellowship, KCF. We reveal the reality of the Kingdom of God and Christ Jesus in the lives of people all over the world. As you listen to this message, we pray that you are blessed and inspired to improve your relevance in the Kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus, my brothers and my sisters, you are welcome to this evening's um, Kingdom Mindset service. Um, I would want you to just notify someone that we are online and we are about to spend a few minutes in the Word of God. Just share the link right now. Copy the link and post in your various WhatsApp groups, um, social media platforms. And let someone know that we are online and we are about to share the Word of God in a few minutes. I'll just give you a minute or two to just notify someone and let them know that we are online. Whilst you are doing that, I want you to just lift up your voice and begin to speak in the language of the Spirit. Wherever you are, open up your mouth, in your, in your rooms, in your kitchens, in your cars, in your workplaces. On your way home, just lift up your voice and bless the name of the Lord. Masi palaba sheba rababa rapa palwa si zotele bosu de bantele sheba baraba kapalaba kwa si zendele bosheba rapa palaba swa sepele izabala bashwa tapara rapa palaba laba kapa ilaba laba si zote iba sheba rapa pa zale bolo bosheba raba kadilwa tata zanda bale boshepe pere bokodolo. Notify someone that we are online. We are online. And we are about to pray. Whilst wherever you are, just pray right now. And say, Father, visit me this evening. Visit me this time. As we connect, O Lord, by the technology of faith. Father, we declare in the name of Jesus. Have mercy upon us. Father, release your grace upon us right now in the name of Jesus. Spirit of truth, we pray that you boot over our hearts. We pray that you boot over our minds right now. Lift up your voice. Lift up your voice. Message papa. Mese bla palaba swasidi. Zekadulo boshe bababara. Leton telebo suze brapa. Rebabarababa. Shabababababa. Mele badulo boswasipa. Zatata labala. 
Zerebo shepa para baba. Repelebo suasi se palaba shepa para. Yada dalaba suse. Ibada balababa. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Malebo sheba rebo dondi. Telebo sheba rapapa. Beria papa rabakodia delebo sheba baba. Father, we ask, O Lord, that you have your way. You have your way. Have your way. Have your way this evening, Lord. Thank you for such a beautiful time. Thank you, O Lord, for this month. This new month of grace. This new month of favor. This new month of mercy. Thank you, O Lord, for the season of our covenant of exemption. Thank you, O Lord, that by the power of your word, Father, we are exempted from the power of hell. Sin in the grave. Thank you, O Lord, for my brothers and my sisters who have connected, O Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Lord, release your grace unto us, even in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello again, and good evening. And you are welcome to this evening's Kingdom Mindset Service. Kingdom Mindset Service. It's a powerful place to put your hands together and celebrate the Lord in your homes. I know that you may not be able to shout and all um, in your workplaces for those on their way home. I bring you greetings from KCF and Zion Impact Ministries. And we are broadcasting live from Zion Impact Ministries, Glory Mount, Ateshi. God bless you in the name of Jesus. This evening... We have another time to study the Word of God. And before I do so, I want us to acknowledge the life of our Father, Apostle Kingsley J. Singh, all the men of God in this ministry, all the ordained men of God, the other ministers, the church workers, the families in this ministry, those supporting in the media team, um, in the finance, in the instrumentalist team, the choir and all of that. We salute the grace of God upon your life. And it's my honor to see from all of us in Zion Impact and KCF, we wish our very own Reverend Linda on the occasion of her birthday a glorious anniversary in this new season in the name of Jesus. God bless you so much, woman of God. And wherever you are, we send you our love. We send you our greetings. We send you our prayer. And for most of us that are joining us, I pray that by the grace of God, you'll be sending in your momo and your seeds also in the name of Jesus. If you have not done that already, pick up your phones and send in your, you know, show your love, show your love. Hallelujah. Amen. So, today is another Thursday, and by the grace of God, we are here to study the Word of God briefly. Now, we are in the month of March, and the theme for this month is exemption by mercy and exemption by favor. Exemption by mercy and exemption by favor. Enforcing the covenant of exemption through mercy and favor. And by the grace of God, in the last couple of days, we've spent our time praying and enforcing this particular exemption by mercy and favor. Now, today, I want us to do a little bit of teaching. And 
I would not be able to go through the entire concept of mercy and favor. Nonetheless, what I want to do today is still under the theme of exemption through mercy and favor. But then I want to tackle one particular thing that came as a confusion in my mind. Um, And I believe a few of you might be having that particular confusion. Now, in the realm of criminal justice and philosophy, when we are talking about legal matters, one of the things that you would very quickly realize is that there is a paradox that exists between the the, the discharge of justice and also the discharge of mercy. When I say a paradox, I mean that it's something that is contradictory. It seems to us that justice and mercy finds it so difficult to exist together. And when I heard about our theme for this particular month, this is one of the contradictions that rose up in my mind and in my heart. And by the grace of God, God gave me clarity. And I want to, you know, share that with you in a form of today's teaching. Now, what I want to do is that by the grace of God, I want to go through all of this very quickly so that we finish and exhaust at least to the level of what we have that we need to share so that we just finish it in this particular um, episode. So I'll just encourage you to get your Bibles, get a notebook, pull up um, a notepad on your phone or your device, and then let's just take a few notes. The first thing that I want us to look at is Hebrews chapter 4, the verse number 16. If we can have that on the screen, I'll read that briefly. And then we'll jump into what we need to do today. Hebrews chapter 4, the verse number 16. The Bible says, in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, that is the last verse. It says, and if you are at home with me, kindly read together so that we go. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If you read this again, let's read it again. It says, let us therefore come boldly. Now, if the Bible is yours, underline that phrase here, come boldly. So let us therefore come boldly. Then it says, to the throne of grace. If the Bible is yours again, underline the phrase, the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy. If the Bible is yours, underline the phrase, obtaining mercy and find grace. Obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, I'm going to read it all over again from the beginning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find help and grace. And find grace to help in the time of need. Amen. So today, the title of what we'll be looking at is Dealing with the Paradox of Justice and Mercy in the Throne Room, in the, in the Throne of Grace. So the title for this evening's discussion is The Throne of Grace being the answer to the Paradox 
of justice and mercy. Now, if you look at the particular scripture that we just read, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, number one, one of the things that you will quickly understand is that when we are dealing with mercy, the one at the receiving end of mercy is subject to the will, is subject to the preference, is subject to the dictates of the person giving mercy. Do you understand me so far? When it comes to justice, justice is typically a right that you are entitled to. So when someone offends you, you have the right to seek justice. And as a result of your right, you can demand justice. However, when it comes to the arena of mercy, the one at the receiving end cannot demand. Justice is a right that you can be demanded. But mercy seems to be an act of privilege that you seek for. Are you with me so far? So, when the Bible says, come boldly to the throne of grace, let's look at the scripture again on the screen. Let's look at the scripture again on the screen. When the Bible says that, come boldly, it seems to me that the author of this particular scripture is, really, is, 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 is moving or elevating the arena of grace and mercy to a place that is no longer a privilege, to a place that is rather a right that can be demanded. So the Bible says that come boldly to the throne of grace. And therefore, it seems as if when you are coming for grace and for mercy, you come in the place of power, in the place of a right, rather than a privilege where you beg. Are you with me so far this evening? Hallelujah. Now, one of the things that you would also see In this particular scripture, is that grace and mercy, as the Bible puts it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it is a dispensation or it is a release or it is a result from the throne of grace. Now, the Bible says in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Let's read the book of John, chapter 1, the verse number 14. The Bible says, but as many as believed in him, he gave them the power to become sons of God. Then he moves on further to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. If the Bible is yours, underline this phrase, full of grace and truth. Now, if you jump three verses down to the verse number 17, the Bible then begins to compare the law and then grace by saying that for the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So, in just the scripture that we've looked at in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, one of the things that we've seen so far is that number one, when dealing with mercy, it seems to be that mercy is a privilege and that you seek and then you ask for mercy. On the other hand, justice is a right that can be demanded. 
But in the author, in writing Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, elevated mercy to the realm where it can be demanded. So he says, come boldly. A beggar does not come boldly. The next thing we realize is that mercy and grace is dispensed from a throne. And it says the throne of grace. So mercy does not just act on its own. Grace does not just, uh, or, or mercy does not just um, 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 evolve or does not just exist on its own. It is a result of the grace of God. And we are realizing that even grace, the Bible says, it is from Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Because the Bible says the law came from Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Already, as we look at these three scriptures, we can already see that as there is a comparison between the law and grace, we can see that this inherent paradox, there is an inherent conflict, there is an existing contradiction between the existence of justice, which is the law, and the existence of mercy, which is found in grace. I hope I've not confused you so far. I hope I've not confused you so far. So, when we think about this philosophically, as I said, inherently, there is a paradox. It seems as if justice cannot function well together with mercy. It seems as if there is a contradiction between the law that dispenses justice and then grace that dispenses mercy. However, the author of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, puts it so nicely that you might not even see this conflict. And it seems to balance justice and mercy easily and so well. Hallelujah. And that is why today we are looking at dealing with the paradox of justice and mercy. The answer being the throne of grace. Hallelujah. Now, before I move in further, I want us to talk about something concerning democracy and the kingdom. The first thing that I want to tackle is that, number one, one of the fundamental differences between democracy and the kingdom is one principle that democracy has, which is the principle of the separation of powers. The principle of what? The separation of powers. Now, if you understand how democracy works, democracy came as a result of observing the kind of abuse that existed in kingdoms where there is no separation of, of powers. It means that in the, in, 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 the, in the concept of a kingdom where a king rules, all the powers that is needed to administer a domain rest in an individual or a few individuals. And you realize that in discharging their responsibilities, oftentimes when you look at kingdoms that have come and gone, human kingdoms that have come and gone, there is often the element of abuse. So one philosopher says that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So in the definition of the framework for democracy, the people that thought about democracy realized that power should not rest. Should not rest. P 
power should not rest in one individual alone or in one institution alone. Because when one individual or one institution has absolute power, they would be corrupted absolutely. Because power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, in the definition and the bedrock of democracy is the principle of the separation of powers. Separation of powers lets us understand that different arms of government or different institutions have power to be able to discharge their responsibilities in a manner in which that no one institution can do everything surrounding government and administration. If if, if, if power has been distributed and separated into various institutions and arms of government, it means that each arm of government acts as a check and a balance to the other institution. Are you with me so far? Concerning the principle of separation of powers, we, the principle says that power cannot be concentrated in an individual or in an institution. The responsibilities and the powers to discharge the affairs of the kingdom, the affairs of the government, has been separated into different institutions and different governments. However, that is not the case of a kingdom. And the kingdom or the kind of government that God runs is not a democracy, my brother and my sister. The kind of government that God runs is not a democracy. It is, in fact, one of the purest sense of a kingdom. It is a government that is run by God. And that means that if democracy is, um, is, is, if democracy is run on the principle of the will of the people, in the kingdom, the administration is run on the will of God or the will of the king. So, one of the things that you have to quickly realize is that in a kingdom... There is no separation of government. However, unlike other human kingdoms, where because of the lack of separation of powers, there is abuse, in the kingdom of God, there is no abuse. There is no separation of powers, yet there is no abuse. Now, I know that someone would say that, yes, in the Godhead, there are three personalities. And all of them, they are all and the same but they are three different persons. And when it comes to the administration of the affairs of the Godhead, they all seem to function in slightly different and unique ways. Yes, I understand that aspect. What I'm talking about is the administration of the kingdom of God, not the dealings of the Godhead. Are you with me so far? So in the administration of the kingdom of God, where there is a king, there is no separation of government. There is no separation of power. It all resides in the king. And oftentimes, when a king moves, in certain aspects of a kingdom, his government moves with him. That is why the Bible says in the book of Isaiah chapter 9, it says that, and the government shall be on his shoulders. When he moves, he moves with the entirety of his government. Hallelujah. In the kingdom of God, it's not a democracy. There is no separation of powers. Yet, there is no abuse. God in himself provides they check and balances because of one thing. The righteous nature of God. Hallelujah. The righteous nature of God. Hallelujah. 
Someone say with me, the righteous nature of God. The righteous nature of God. Because of the integrity of the righteous nature of God, there is no separation of government in God's kingdom, yet there is no abuse. Because God himself is his check and his balance. Because there are some things that God cannot do. And there are some things that God can do. One of the things that God cannot do is that, according to the book of um, Titus, it says that the God who cannot lie, God cannot lie. If you come to the book of Timothy, the Bible says that when we are unfaithful, God cannot be faithless because he cannot deny himself. So God cannot be unfaithful. There are some things that God cannot do. And that becomes a check and a balance to himself. The Bible says that God has elevated his word above his throne. So that means that when God speaks, usually he is also bound by his word. And because of that righteous nature of God, there is integrity in the, in the character and the nature of God. That even though there is no separation of powers and all the available power and authority is invested in the king of the kingdom, there is no abuse. There is no abuse. So when you come and you are dealing with God, it's not the concept of a democracy where it's the majority that carries the vote. No. You believe that the government of God is run according to the will. If you come to the book of Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, according to the will and according to the pleasure of himself, and yet it is to your good because of the integrity of the righteous nature of God. I'm with me so far. Now, I want us to look at one particular scripture. In the book of James chapter 1, the verse number 17. James 1, verse 17. I want us to look at the last phrases. James 1, verse 17. The Bible says what? I with me, open your Bibles together with me or write this particular scripture down also for reference. James 1 verse 17. I'm interested in the last phrase, but let's read from the top. The Bible says, For every good and perfect gift is from above and comes from the Father of lights. Now look at how the Bible describes the Father of light. It says, Give me the King James version of this first before we come to the new King James. The King James version of this particular scripture. It says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes from the father of lights. Now the Bible is trying to describe the father of lights. And it says, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. With whom in the father of light, there is no variableness. Neither the shadow of turning. Now let's go back to the New King James. The New King James. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, if you pay attention to the two, the, the phrases in the last line, it says, There is no variation or variableness. And there is no shadow of turning. One of the things that this portrays is that God is consistent. And there is an integrity to who his nature is. 
Now, what does it mean by that? When there is variableness or variation in the person, it means that the person is subject to change. It means that based on the state, one of the things that makes human beings um, 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 not consistent is, for instance, the aspect of our emotions. People usually take decisions based on the state of their emotions. So because of how their emotions are, they can make or unmake a decision. I get to me so far. However, when you come to the arena of the law, in a courtroom, in a legal system, there are some things that need to be constant. A judge cannot punish someone based on the emotions of the judge. And the judge cannot let someone go free based on his emotions. There is a need for um, um, consistency. There is a need for the virtue of integrity. And the virtue of integrity means that you must be stable. Quote, unquote. Stable. Stable. There must be no variation. There must be no variableness. Some other versions of the Bible says that God is not subject to change. God is not subject to, you know, differences. God is not subject to contradiction. Are you getting me so far? Now, this is recorded in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, it means that technically, by the power of the word of God, we know that God cannot have We know that God cannot have conflicting personalities. And actually, when you think about it, any human being that has conflicting personalities, we call that a psychological problem, right? I believe that's, I believe personality disorder or bipolar or something like that, where one person in himself has a particular outlook for one particular situation and then has a different outlook in a similar situation or another situation, you are confusing. There, you, there is variableness. And, and, and most, most of the time, every human being has a level of variableness. And I'm saying that in the, in, the, in the area of your emotions, you are always variable. Based on the mood you are in, sometimes you might decide to talk to the people around you. Based on the mood you are in, you might decide to greet your husband or greet your wife or not mind them. Based on the mood you are in, well, you cannot, I, I, was, I hope I was, I was going to say that you can decide to go to work or not go to work, but usually because of the pay factor, you can't do that. But then you can decide to go to class or not go to class. Based on the mood you are in, you can decide to go out and execute a particular business, do something or not. Based on the mood you are in, you can decide to pray or not pray. Based on the mood you are in, you can decide to, you know, fast or no fast. You can decide to read your Bible or not. Man is subject to variableness, variation. We are subject to change. However, if God is deciding to be like us and then acts based on his emotions, uh, the, 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 the universe, you know, will not hold. And that is why there are some things that are upheld by principles and by laws. Are you with me so far? So technically, if God has a particular personality, it cannot conflict with another personality he has. And one of the things that we are going to look at is that one, God is just. God is what? Just. He is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. So God is just, anytime you meet God, anytime you meet God, the one who is not subject to variableness, anytime you meet him, you must meet him in a state of being just. And this is because of his righteous nature, the integrity of his righteous nature. His just nature says that when God sees sin, he must punish sin. The result of sin is death. Anytime you encounter God and there is an avenue for sin, the just nature of God means that he must deal with it, punish it, and deal with it. Number two, God is merciful. So it means that anytime you meet God also, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, you meet him as a merciful God. The merciful nature of God is as a result of his compassionate faithfulness that does not want us, human beings, his creation, his sons, his daughters, members of his family to be destroyed. So when you meet God, you should meet God as a just God. When you meet God also, you should meet God as a merciful God. Because of God's just nature, whenever he sees sin, he must punish sin, which might result in death. For the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. That is what you must meet when you meet God as a just God. But then God is also merciful. So when you meet God, it seems as if he would ignore sin so that man would not perish. I seeing the conflicting things I'm putting together. God does not change. There is no variation in him. He is constant. However, and I'm saying that for him to be constant, it means that God cannot have conflicting personalities. If God has conflicting personalities, you can say that the God you are worshipping is bipolar. He has personality disorder. But God doesn't have bipolar. God doesn't have personality disorder. Yet again, I'm saying that God, when you meet God on any given day, yesterday, today, forever, you meet God as a just God. And because of his just nature, whenever he sees sin, death must come as a, as a punishment for sin. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And then the opposing thing is that God is merciful. So when you meet God, he would ignore sin so that man, his creation, his family will not perish. There is a just nature of God and there is a what? Merciful nature of God. So if I am saying according to James chapter 1 verse 17, that there is no variableness in God. And that because there is no variableness in God, God cannot have two conflicting personalities. Why am I raising the issue of his justice and raising his issue, the issue of his mercy? Hallelujah. And that is where I came from. That in the philosophy of criminal justice, in the philosophy of law, when you think about law, you realize that there is an inherent conflict, inherent paradox whenever you bring the subject of justice and the subject of mercy. And before I continue, I'm telling you the answer, that the answer to this conflicting, you know, virtues or natures of God is that Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, has solved it and balanced it beautifully in the throne of grace. It seems so far, based on what I've said so far, is that 
there is a conflict between the just nature of God and the message nature of God. But I'm telling you the end of the message that it has been solved beautifully, well balanced in the throne of grace. Hallelujah. So let's just dive quickly into what I mean by number one, the just God. And then number two, the merciful God. Give me the book of Job 4, 17. Job 4, 17. Now, Job 4, 17 says, Can a mortal man be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his makeup? Now, give me the King James Version of this particular scripture. The King James Version says that, Shall a mortal man be more just if the Bible is yours, underline that phrase, more just than God. Can a mortal man be more just than God? Now, let's jump to Job 34.5. Let's read Job 34.5 if I continue. Job 34.5 For Job has said, I am righteous, and God has taken away my judgment. Now, for this one, let's look at it in the New King James. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Now, we are going to look at what I mean by a just God, and then we'll look at what I mean by a merciful God. When dealing with God as a just God. One of the things is that man cannot be more just than God. And because of one of the phrases or comments that Job made in Job 34, 5, that was the reason why when God appeared and decided to answer Job, God was angry with him. Because Job made it seem as if God was unjust or God was unrighteous. Because Job complained, I have been righteous. But God has dealt with me not according to righteousness, not according to justice. God has been unfair with me. Anytime a man says that God has been unfair, it provokes a kind of anger in God because God is, like I said, because of the integrity of his righteous nature, there is no variableness. When he is just, he is just yesterday, today, and forever. So you cannot say that at any point in time, any point in time, yesterday, today, and forever, that God has been unjust. Give me Job. Sorry, let's jump to Proverbs 11.1. 1. Proverbs 11.1. 1. Give me the King James version of this. Proverbs 11.1, the Bible says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. We can see that. So when God is dealing with, the disp- with dispensing justice, he even doesn't like things that are in balance. Things that, are, he doesn't like improper fractions. Basically, that's what God is saying. That's what the Bible, God doesn't like improper fractions. It must always be balanced. If you've done chemistry before, God doesn't like an unbalanced chemical equation. 
the left hand side and the right hand side must be balanced. If you are doing any kind of mathematical equation, the left hand side and the right hand side must be balanced. That's the whole concept of change of subjects. You are moving things till the left hand side is balanced to the right hand side. And the Bible says that a false balance is an abomination to God. Now, what does it mean by balance? Now, if you check, almost all um, images that talk about justice and the legal framework in any country, it's symbolized by a balance. So if you go to many courts, many lawyers, many judges, anytime they want to identify the concept of justice or the concept of the law, there is always a balance. Are you getting me? A scale balance. <coughs> and the Bible is saying that an improper balance is an abomination. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 11, look at what the Bible says. Proverbs 16, 11. The Bible says that a just weight and a balance, a just weight and a balance are the Lord's. A what? A just weight and a balance, they are the Lord's. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 23. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 23. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 23 says that diverse weights, improper weights, they are an abomination. And the false balance is not good. Hallelujah. So, based on these scriptures, we understand that when we are looking at God as a just God, God doesn't like improper balances, improper or diverse weights. Now, that is the reason why after God gave the first ten commandments and decided to explain in the book of Exodus, God decided to set in place the framework of dealing with social justice and even criminal justice. So, he says that, for instance, you shall work uh, six days. On the seventh, you shall rest. It's dealing with social justice. He talks about the fact that even when human beings uh, and the people need to you know, do number two, they shouldn't do it in the camp. They should find a way outside the camp and to deal with that. When someone has leprosy or has a particular skin disease and they are contagious or even the house is contaminated and it's contagious, there's a framework of dealing with it. Isolate this person and go all the way. The framework of social justice. So that someone who is polluted will not come and infect everyone in the land. Dealing with society. Social justice. Are you getting me? When you um, get a slave, this is how you should treat the slave. If you get a slave and you get angry and whilst um, meting out punishment to the slave, the slave gets hit, then you are required to let the slave go. You know, talking about righteousness in dealings in the society. But then there was also criminal justice. So, if someone comes and then by accident kills your animal, because it's by accident, there is a way to deal with it. If someone comes and intentionally kills your animal because it was done 
by um, 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 it was done intentionally. There is a, a way to do with it. If two people are fighting and someone mistakenly kills the other person, there is a way to deal with it. If someone intentionally plans to kill someone, there is a way to deal with it. In in current law, there is what um, um, premeditated murder or whatever manslaughter, where it is done unintentionally. But from the very beginning, the book of Exodus. God decided to set the framework for what? Justice. Whether in the social sense or even in the criminal sense. And that is where we get the concept of for true justice to occur, one of the things that God put in place was that an eye for an eye. If someone hurts you and blocks out your eye, when you go to the priest or the judge, they must make sure that they also hurt your eye in the same way so that it's damaged to the same equal measure. That is how justice works. There is no, there must be proper balance. If someone um, mistakenly cuts your hand and maybe he cuts your hand and all your fingers are off except maybe your index finger, when you go for justice, they must do the same thing and destroy the other person's hand so that you destroy all the fingers and the index finger must be, rela- must be remaining. If it was the pinky finger, you leave the pinky finger standing. Justice deals with proper balance. Whenever there is improper balance, there is the component of injustice, unrighteousness, unfairness. Are you with me so far? So that is the nature of God. Jesus is the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Anytime you meet God, you realize that he deals with proper balance. And that he is just yesterday, today, and forever. And then the second nature of God, dealing with God as the merciful God. Number one, dealing with God as a just God. Number two, dealing with God as the merciful God. Give me Psalm 86, the verse number 15. Psalm 86, the verse number 15. Psalm 86, the verse number 15. One five. So, Psalm 86, the verse number 15 says... But you, oh Lord, you are full of compassion. You are gracious. You are long-suffering. And underline this phrase. You are plenteous in mercy and truth. Give me the new King James. Let me see if he uses a different word from plenteous. But you, oh Lord, are a God full of compassion. Gracious. Long-suffering. And the Bible says abundant. The Bible says what? Abundant in mercy and truth. Abundant. Give me the Bible, um, the verse in the book of Daniel chapter 9, verse 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9. In the book of Daniel chapter 9, verse 9. The Bible says, to you, our God, belong mercy. Belong what? Mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him. Daniel chapter 9 verse 9. The Bible says, to the Lord our God, belong mercy 
and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him. So, we see that mercy, God is abundant in mercy. And the Bible says that God also, mercy belongs to him. Let's look at Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, this is God speaking. He says, For I desire what mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And then finally, let's look at the book of Ephesians chapter 2, the verse number 4. Ephesians chapter 2, the verse number 4. The Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy, if the Bible is yours, underline this phrase, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us. Who is rich? Now, as we said in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14, 17, there is no variableness in God. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means that when you meet God yesterday, when you meet God today, when you meet God forever in the future, God is rich in mercy. Mercy belongs to God. God is plenteous, as the New King James will say, abundant in mercy. According to Hosea chapter 6, God desires mercy rather than sacrifice. God, it seems like he desires mercy rather than sacrifice. He desires mercy. Now, how is the, nature, the merciful nature of God displayed? Now, this is what we would say. In dealing with God as a just God, I say that God likes proper balance. Right? So anything, when something is off, there must be the right punishment. When dealing with God as the merciful God, one of the things that you must have in mind is that there is a component of his inner being called compassion. That is where his mercy flows from. That is where his word mercy flows from. So if you look at the book of Lamentations chapter 3, the Bible says from the verse number 22, Lamentations chapter 3, the verse number 22, the Bible says that because of the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassion fails not. His compassion. It is based on the compassion of Jesus Christ that there, there were certain miracles that were evoked when he dealt with the multitude. It was not based on, their, um, on the fact that they qualified for the miracle, but it was based on an innermost desire, an innermost burning, an innermost sensation of compassion. Something that resides in the bosom of, of we usually characterize it by, you know, um, um, the bosom of our mothers. Something that resides in the bosom of our mothers. Compassion. Now, it's because of his compassion that mercy flows. So, when you look at mercy flowing from the bowels of compassion of God, it seems to us that God would overlook an improper balance. God would overlook sin and not met out the right judgment. God would overlook what the wages of sin should be, which is death. And instead of giving death, which is the right punishment for sin, 
God rather gives mercy and says, you are pardoned. God rather gives mercy and says, I have overlooked it. God rather looks at mercy and says, I've forgiven you. So, if you check, technically, the legal argument of Jonah, the very reason for Jonah's rebellion and disobedience is because of the righteous nature of God, which is born out of his mercy. The whole argument of Jonah and the reason why he didn't want to even go on the errand that God sent him on was because he says there is a bowel of of compassion where mercy flows on. God has instructed me, go to the land of Nineveh and proclaim judgment that because of your sin, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. Jonah analyzed it and says, so far in my dealings with God, I have never encountered God as a just God. In my dealings with God so far, God has always proved himself to me as a merciful God. So it is useless for me to go and tell these people that judgment is coming because at the end of the day, the merciful nature of God would overlook the sin of Nineveh and then ignore their sin. And though there's an improper balance, there will be injustice because mercy would take place. I with me so far. I with me so far. Now, I've established that philosophically there's a contradiction between mercy and justice. And I said God is one. Yet so far, I've also been able to establish that there is a contradiction between just God and merciful God. So, let me resolve this improper balance and then we'll be done. We'll be done in a few minutes. So, give me the book of Ephesians 2.4 again. Ephesians 2.4. Ephesians 2.4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. Now, if you are writing notes, I want us to look at the next thing. To tamper justice with mercy. To tamper justice with mercy. To tamper justice with mercy. Now, for justice to be true justice, it means that there cannot be mercy. Listen to me so far. There is an inherent contradiction between justice and mercy. So for true justice to exist, there cannot be mercy. And then also for true mercy to exist, there cannot be justice. So just before, I mean in preparation, I decided to do some research. And I stumbled upon an article from one um, professor in in the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. In their law faculty, he recently died um, out of complications um, from COVID. David Dolinko. David Dolinko. You can go and research on him. He has a 12-page article. And the title is, The Naive Thoughts About Justice and Mercy. Now, look at what he said. 
the naive thoughts. Anytime anyone brings justice and mercy in the same environment and you think that they can exist together, it proves to you, it proves to the people listening to you that you have some kind of naivety. It means you are slightly ignorant about what true justice is and what mercy is. Are you with me so far? Now, mind you, that we are talking about exemption through mercy and favor. But for us to tackle the concept of mercy, we need to understand that when mercy truly exists, there can be no justice. That means that God is an unjust God. But we know that God is not unjust. So in bringing the just nature of God, it means that there can be no mercy. So David Dolingo, in a 12-page document, talked about the naive thoughts about justice and mercy. A professor, an expert in criminal law and philosophy at UCLA. Now, in his article, he says that, or based on my understanding or, yeah, of his article, what I got, this, what I sense from his article, is that for justice and mercy to exist, it's a very, very difficult thing. And this kind of conflict has plagued philosophers all the way from Aristotle. Are you with me so far? It has plagued many philosophers all the way. So if we have the concept of justice and mercy prevailing now in our legal system, it means that truly, truly, whenever a judge or a court dispenses judgment, dispenses mercy, what they are doing is that they are giving you typically a lesser punishment for a particular offense. Are you with me? When the court is dispensing mercy, what they typically do is that they'll give you a lesser punishment for an offense because the justice nature of a court cannot ignore your offense. Or your offense. So they give you what? A lenient punishment. The second thing that he says is that because of that, mercy becomes a subcategory of justice. I hope I've not lost you. Mercy becomes what? A subcategory of justice. It means that mercy cannot stand alone. It means that mercy is hidden in justice. That is the only way that in our current legal framework, mercy and justice can live together. For instance, you catch someone who has stolen someone's car. When you bring the person to the court, the judge cannot ignore that this person has done a particular offense. If the punishment for that offense is two years in prison, it means that the justice nature of the court is that you give out the full punishment. For a court to be seen as merciful, they will say that, okay, what is the circumstances surrounding the theft? And the person will say, oh, so, you know, there's the offender speaking. We'll say that, oh, so, you know, um, I didn't really intend to steal the car. It's just that there was a particular emergency at home. And I was driving my car, and my car got spoiled. But then someone at home needed urgent medical attention. So I saw this, my neighbor's car, and I broke into it, stole it, so that I can take this particular person to the hospital. The judge would then say, let me broaden the scope of my analysis outside just this particular offense. 
And because of the circumstances surrounding the offense, they will say, instead of giving you two years in prison, I'll give you six months in prison. Because there is another circumstances that surrounds the offense. So in our current legal system, probably across the world, whenever justice and mercy live together, justice becomes the umbrella and mercy becomes a lesser component of justice. So basically, justice is justice and mercy is an inform of injust justice. I don't know if I'm confusing you, but let me, go, let me move away from there. Mercy becomes a subcategory of justice. Now, what it means, and this is the term we typically use, most people will say when they plead to a court, when they plead to someone in authority, tamper justice with mercy. Tamper what? Justice with mercy. Tamper justice with mercy. Just before I came here, I asked uh, Ruel to give me the true definition of the word tamper. And tamper means that to change. But one of the true definitions of tamper means to destroy. To destroy. So, for instance, if you buy certain medicines and certain foods that have been packaged, when the seal is tampered with, it means that it is unsafe for you to consume. So, anytime you tamper justice with mercy, truly, in the legal framework of the world, as it is, we destroy justice. Say with me. Whenever you tamper justice with mercy, what you do is that mercy destroys justice. And you result in a world, I mean, it results in a world where it seems as if there can be injustice, even in the court system. Are you with me so far? Are you with me so far? So you can just go and look for um, David Doligo's um, 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 article. In the law, as it seems now, whenever we tamper justice with mercy, mercy destroys justice. So mercy and justice cannot live together. But then now, how does the throne of grace solve this? Now, I talked about the fact that in a government, there are separation of powers. But in the kingdom, there is a concentration of power. One of the things that you realize is that in every kingdom, there is a throne. Now, the throne, because there is no separation of powers, one of the benefits of having a throne for a king is that the throne and where the throne is situated becomes the court, becomes the palace, becomes the seat of government, becomes the courtroom. Because there is separation of government in a, in a democracy, there is a building for the executive, there is a building for the parliamentarians, there is a building for the judiciary, the courts. But for a kingdom, because of the throne for the king, because there is a concentration of power in the king, the court is the same place where the parliament is. And the parliament is the same place where the, um, you know, the executive's um, building is, which is the uh, Flagstaff House. The Flagstaff House, 
the parliament, the court, they are all in the same place because of the throne. And when we come to the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, the throne that we get to engage with is the throne of grace. There is a concentration of all power. Yet, because the throne has that embodiment, when you are dealing with God, the king sitting on the throne, you can appeal to him on the executive side. You can appeal to him on the legislative side. And you can appeal to him on the judiciary side. There is no separation of powers. There is a concentration of power all residing in the throne. I with me so far. I with me so far. So how does the throne of grace fix the paradox of justice and mercy? And this is how the throne solves it. Number one, God is a just God. Yesterday, today, and forever, whenever God sees sin, he must give the right punishment. The wages of sin is death. Number two, God is merciful. So from the bowels of compassion proceeds mercy. And he seems to ignore punishment or sin so that he would forgive that we might not be destroyed. On the throne of grace, first of all, give me Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Give me Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We'll look at this two, two more scriptures and they'll be out of here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. The Bible says, this is Jesus speaking. If the Bible is on point, it'll be in red. The Bible says, do not think that I came to destroy their law. Do not think, Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy their law. I did not come to temper their law. I did not come to temper their law or the prophets. I came to, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill it. In the throne of grace, the Bible says that for grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. On the throne of grace with Jesus, Jesus did not tamper, destroy justice with mercy. Jesus fulfilled justice and Jesus fulfilled mercy. How? So, because of the sin of man, when God needed to execute the penalty for sin, God destroyed and gave the full measure of sin to Jesus, his own, his own son, fully, fully. When Jesus received the full penalty for the sin of all man, he said at the end, it is finished. Justice was fulfilled. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. I did not come to tamper the law, but I came to fulfill it. Jesus received in himself on the cross a balanced scale. The full judgment, punishment for sin, which is what? Death. Which is what? Death. For the wages of sin is death. God said, on the day you eat this particular fruit of the tree, you shall die. When Jesus came, I did not come to tamper, destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. On the cross, Jesus received in full the full punishment, the full wages for sin, death. Justice 
in the throne room of grace, on the throne of grace, was executed to its fullest extent. It was fulfilled. And then now, out of the bowels of compassion, God looks at me and you, man, and says, because I've punished your sin, I give to you mercy. So he says, come boldly, not as a privilege, but as something you have the right to. It has been dealt with, so I come boldly. It has been dealt with, so I come boldly. Not because I'm begging, but because justice has not been tempered with. Justice has been fulfilled, so I come boldly. Then it says, come and obtain. The word obtain means it is a result. Because justice has not been tempered with, and justice has been fulfilled, the result of that fulfillment is that God is now free and at liberty to release from the bowels of his compassion, mercy. So when I come boldly as a kingdom citizen, I'm not coming to beg for mercy, which is in the place of a privilege, I can demand mercy. And I say, oh Lord, let mercy speak because justice has not been destroyed. Justice has not been tampered with. In any legal system of the world, when you need to have justice and mercy living together to solve that paradox, mercy always destroys justice. But in the kingdom of God, because of the throne, of grace, he says, come boldly that you may obtain mercy, mercy, and you'll find grace to help in the time of need. On the throne of grace only, the Bible says, justice is fulfilled and God is liberated that from the bowels of compassion, he would release to you mercy. I pray for you this evening that mercy will be released to you. Every righteous... You see, let's go to Romans chapter 8 verse 4 before I just pray briefly for you. Romans chapter 8 verse 4. Romans chapter 8 verse 4. The Bible says that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. Look at what the Bible says. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. As a kingdom citizen, any time you elevate your walk into the realm of the spirit and leave the realm of the flesh, the righteous requirement of the law is constantly fulfilled. It's constantly fulfilled because the righteous requirement of the law is that justice must prevail. Whenever there is sin, there is death. In the realm of the spirit, you take the sacrifice of Christ's death that says that this is the payment for your sin. It's dealt with fulfilled. The law is fulfilled. Justice is fulfilled. God is at liberty in the realm of the spirit to then dispense to you grace, to then dispense to you mercy. So he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. 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 I pray for you, my brother and my sister, that you come boldly to the throne of grace because it's only in the throne of grace where there is no separation of powers, but rather the concentration of power that justice is fulfilled and mercy is fulfilled. 
I pray that as the result of the full fulfillment of the requirement of justice by the death, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, may God be at liberty to dispense to you mercy. May God be at liberty to dispense to you grace in your time of need. You see, whatever requirement, legal requirement that your ancestors went into based on covenants with old deities, made proclamations, people in authority made proclamations that you are violated in any way, for which justice is crying, for which blood of innocent people in your past, the wickedness of your ancestry that they've done, for which Blood is crying and seeing justice and justice and justice. I declare that at the throne of grace, may justice be fulfilled by the payment of the sacrifice of the blood of Christ Jesus. That may God be at liberty to dispense to you mercy. May you obtain mercy at the throne of grace. May you obtain mercy at the throne of grace. May you obtain mercy. At the throne of grace. When we enter into this season where we are saying exemption by mercy, may no legal argument be made in the regions of the underworld that God is being unrighteous and unjust for, to, for him to destroy justice. I declare that whatever requirement, anyone that says your blood is needed, I declare that the blood of Christ Jesus will speak. Anyone that will say that your marriage is the payment, I declare that the blood of Christ Jesus will speak. Anyone that says your health must be payment for justice, I declare that the blood of Christ Jesus will speak. In the season of exemption, by mercy and favor, obtain mercy, obtain mercy, obtain mercy, obtain mercy. mercy. Obtain mercy. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 again. Obtain mercy. Obtain mercy. Hebrews 16, 4, 16. Obtain mercy. Let us therefore come boldly. In this month of March, Father, we come boldly. My brothers, my sisters that are connected over this medium, with the technology of faith, we come boldly, not because we are begging like a privilege, but we come boldly because we demand it as a right that the blood of Christ Jesus will speak better things than the blood of revenge, than the blood of justice, than the blood of penalty, than the blood of punishment. We come boldly. In this month, we declare, and by that boldness, we enforce that we are exempted from death. We enforce that we are exempted from sickness. We enforce that our family is exempted from the chaos and the calamity of this age. We enforce it. We enforce it because we have obtained mercy. Let the throne of grace speak and release mercy to my brother. Release mercy to my sister. Release mercy to the members, the families, the businesses of the people of KCF and Zion. Let the body of Christ obtain mercy. Obtain mercy. Boldly. Boldly. Boldly at the throne of grace. Where justice is not tampered, destroyed.
destroyed, short-circuited. Justice is not short. Justice is fulfilled. And God is at liberty that from the bowels of his compassion, he would exempt us from punishment. So he says, will the lawful captive be set free? I pray that anyone lawfully bound by sin, lawfully bound by iniquity, lawfully bound by sicknesses and diseases, lawfully bound by poverty, I declare, let justice be fulfilled in the blood of Christ Jesus and obtain mercy and exemption. Obtain mercy and exemption. Obtain mercy and exemption. In Jesus' name. Lift up your voice. Begin to cry out right now to God. And say, Father, at the throne of grace, I obtain mercy. Lift up your voice. We obtain mercy, Lord. We obtain mercy, Lord. We In the name of Jesus. I want you to just pray with this particular scripture. Esther chapter 5, verse 5. Esther chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Esther chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. We just pray. I'll just read this. You pray this as we continue into the night and they'll be out of here. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says, and it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. Now, before I continue, you realize that in the chapter 4, Mordecai had come to Esther to ask Esther to intervene that the Jewish people will not be destroyed. And Esther said, according to the law, anyone who enters the presence of the king uninvited would be killed outrightly, except the king extends his scepter to the person. And the Bible says that, and Mordecai says, do not think that because of the law, you'll make an excuse and you'll be exempted from the killings of the Jews. So he said that, let the people lift up a fast and pray for me. I'll also pray with my mates and I'll go. If I perish because of the righteous requirements of the law, I perish. If I go into the presence of the king and I'm destroyed, let me be destroyed. But the Bible says in chapter 5, verse 1, it happened that on the third day after Esther's fast, she put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his, if the Bible is yours, underline, his royal throne, his royal throne, his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. Verse 2. So it was, when the king saw Queen Esther in his sight, that the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And when Esther went near and touched the top, and the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? 
it shall be given to you even up to half the kingdom so answer answered if it pleases the king let the king and Haman come today to a banquet which I've prepared for them. The Bible says, when the king, sitting on his throne of grace, the concentration of power, saw Esther, the Bible says he released a scepter and she dispensed grace instead of mercy. A provision was made that justice will not be destroyed and yet the king was at liberty to release mercy. I pray today for you that in this month, you will be exempted from death, exempted from destruction, exempted from chaos, exempted from ill health because justice will be fulfilled and grace will be released to you. May God stretch out a scepter of grace and obtain it. Find help in your time of need. In the name of Jesus. God bless you for joining us. I'm Reverend Daniel Bochy, and this has been our Kingdom Mindset Service, broadcasting live from Zard Impact Ministry, Glory Mount, Ateshi. And then, like I said, continue saying this prayer. Come boldly. Mercy is usually an act of privilege, but in the throne of grace, you can come boldly because it becomes your right and you can demand for it. I pray that as you drop your seat, you would obtain mercy. You would obtain mercy and you would find grace. Let your offering and your covenant seed of exemption speak for you in this season. I send you plenty love from our apostle, Apostle Kinsley J. Godsing, and all the ministers and pastors of Zion Impact Ministries and KCF Ministries. We love you. Have a beautiful night. And remember that in this kingdom, we are kingdom citizens. In this season, we are walking by the Spirit. We are walking with open doors and breakthrough. Don't let the devil deceive you. In whatever corner where you are being oppressed, rise up as a kingdom citizen. Shake off the devil and know that you have rights. You have rights to mercy. You have rights to help. Lift up your voice and ask God and say, Father, by grace, help me. Even in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to us. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message. If you were blessed by this, share it with someone and be an agent of impactful change for the kingdom of God. God bless you.